Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Do you ever wonder when you hear about certain events, how could that happen? Recently, a couple of shocking things from the world of sports, other than UK beating Florida, have led many to ask that question. A strange high school football game back on August 31st between Florida powerhouse IMG Academy and a school allegedly based out of Ohio called Bishop Sycamore got people's attention, not because of this lopsided score, IMG easily won 58 to nothing, but because it couldn't be established that Bishop Sycamore was a legitimate high school, the coach had an extremely shady reputation, and some of the players weren't high school age. ESPN was nationally embarrassed for televising the game and offered an apology on air for doing so by one of its announcers. uh, announcers. And you have to say, how could that happen? The next weekend, a well-established and well-known Big Ten school from the Midwest showed up at their first game with the name of their university misspelled on a player's jersey. Take a look at that one. (laughs) Here come your fighting Hoosiers from Indonesia University. (laughs) How could that happen? I mean, the guy that prints the jersey, you got one job, right? <laughs> Spell your state right. Today's we pick back up the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. We're going to see something that makes everyone who hears about it say, how could that happen? Last week, we did a deep dive into Joseph's family of origin that seemingly had everything a family from the ancient Near Eastern world would want, but inside the family, there was something very dangerous brewing, something that should have been obvious to everyone, and yet it wasn't. Let's pick up the story again in Genesis chapter 37. We already know that Joseph was his his father's favorite son. The firstborn from Jacob's First, love. And Jacob made no attempt to conceal his favoritism of Joseph, but in fact, he cemented it by giving Joseph a costly robe of distinction worn by children who were heirs of nobility. What made the robe so explosive was not just that it was more expensive or made of better material than the other boys' clothes. In those days, clothing was an expression of status. This was an open, visible, in-your-face expression of raw favoritism that Jacob had for Joseph. And Joseph wears the robe everywhere, as you would expect a young, pampered, naive boy would do. It makes him feel special. But every time he wears it, his brothers know their father will never love them the way he loves Joseph. Every time he wears it, his brothers die a little inside, and this beautiful robe will become a death shroud for the family. But in all honesty, Joseph doesn't help matters much. One day, Joseph has a dream about him being exalted and esteemed in his family even more than he already is. 
You'd think that Joseph might have enough sense to keep quiet about this. You'd think Joseph might have noticed that his brothers can't stand him, but instead he actually gathers his brothers together and he says, hey, fellas, want to hear about some of my dreams I've been having lately? His brothers are probably sarcastically thinking, sure we would, Joey. It's all about you, little bro. He says, in one dream, we all had sheaves standing out in the field but I had the biggest sheaf of all and your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. I think this means one day I will rule over you. I'll command, you'll submit. In another of my dreams, all the stars and even the sun and moon bowed down to me. I'm just brainstorming here, guys, but I think I may be the center of the universe. What do you think about that? (laughs) To give you some insight into how all this went over with his brothers, there is a phrase that keeps popping up in this passage. You're a sharp bunch. See if you can spot the phrase. When the brothers saw their father loved him more than anything, they hated him. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. When his brothers said to him, do you intend to rule over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he had said. What's the phrase? They hated him. Three times in four verses we're told that. This is not just a literary device the writer is using. There is literal danger that Joseph is in. There is complete alienation evident in this home, and it's a matter of time until this volcano of hatred explodes and rips his family apart. So here's what we're going to do today. I want us to look at what I call an autopsy of a trauma. A trauma that Joseph experienced. And here's what we're going to see. I want you to see what Joseph's father didn't do for him, what his brothers did against him, and what the Egyptians did to him. First, Joseph's father failed him. We're going to look at a lot of scripture on this point. Let's take a look. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. We got to stop here and we got to ask, what in the world is Jacob thinking. Clearly, the 10 older brothers hated Joseph's guts. That was no family secret. They hated him because he was their father's favorite. They hated him because he wore that special coat their father had given him all the time. They hated him because he arrogantly reported a couple of dreams that he had that he was going to rule over them one day. In fact, the writer says they did not even have a good word, a kind word to say about him. Jacob, the father, must have been blind not to detect the intensity of that sibling rivalry. Now, some sibling rivalry is to be expected. If your children are not bickering over what television program to watch, what toys they're going to play with, and who sits on what side of the car, they're not normal. Time Magazine had a big cover story several years ago about siblings. And they cited a lot of research about siblings, and one was a study about fighting among siblings. Do you know how much fighting goes on among siblings? Kids between the ages of two and four average 6.2 fights per hour. That's 90 fights per day. That's about 3,000 fights per year. 
If you're parenting multiple preschool age kids, it's no wonder you're tired. You're refereeing fights all day. Some sibling rivalry is normal. But this sibling rivalry in Jacob's home was not normal. It was toxic. And it was potentially violent. Joseph was 17 years old. Most of his brothers were quite a bit older than him. They were grown men. And it was 10 against 1. And their hatred of him was intense. Lest you think I'm being too hard on Jacob, Joseph's father, by saying that he failed Joseph, I want to back up in the narrative of this family, and I want to show you real quick a story that reveals just what these brothers were capable of. Now, take a look at the genogram. We're going to go back to the genogram here. All right, so this is, uh, this is Jacob. This is his first wife, Leah. Her first four sons that Leah gives to Jacob are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Remember those four boys. They are the sons of Jacob's first wife, but not his first love, Leah. Later on, Leah gives birth to a daughter named Dinah. When Dinah grew older, she became the object of sexual obsession by the son of a local king to the point that he raped her. Two of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, went into the city where their sister was assaulted to take revenge with fury. Chapter 34, verse 25, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. These brothers were not just administering justice, they were wreaking vengeance. They robbed, they vandalized, they abused, they murdered, and they seemed to enjoy doing it. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Jacob's response to this heinous attack leaves a lot to be desired. There's no evidence that he tried to exercise any moral authority over them or discipline them. Instead, Jacob appeared only to be concerned with I, me, my. He seemed to regret only the fact that his son's actions had placed him and his reputation at risk and it made it impossible now for the family to settle peacefully in the region. The sons didn't appear to care, care and threw his rebuke back in his face with this retort. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? They're obviously trying to make a moral and political point that the local prince's mistreatment of Dinah, their sister, justified the slaughter of the entire community to say nothing of carrying off the women and children. This whole situation, if you go back and read Genesis 34 sometime, it's so morally grotesque. It's so over the top. It's so out of proportion that it's hard not to see beneath it a seething resentment of Jacob and his attitude to those boys and Dinah, all of whom were children of Leah. And so one day, Jacob thinks it's a good idea to send Joseph to see how these hateful, violent-prone brothers are doing what? Isn't it amazing how difficult it is for us as parents 
to be objective about our own children. Children get into deep trouble. And parents will often say, well, they have a good heart. They're just sowing their wild oats. They're just being kids. Mom and dad, if you get warning signs early, don't ignore them. If a school teacher, youth sponsor, or policeman says, we got a problem here, don't immediately attack the authorities. Could be your child needs correcting. And if your child gets caught in trouble and they say, honestly, mom and dad, this is the first time I ever drank or took drugs. This is the first time I ever shoplifted. You might want to be a little suspicious of that. Look at your family situation as realistically as possible. Listen, don't blame, don't frame, don't shame. Just name what's really going on and deal with it. Jacob was completely naive or deliberately blind to the potential for evil that lurked in his own sons. And he makes a decision that he would regret for the rest of his life. In spite of the obvious tension in the family and the growing hatred towards Joseph, of which Jacob must have been aware, he foolishly decided to send Joseph to see how his brothers were doing. When he told Joseph to go check on him, I, I, I personally tend to think Joseph must have secretly thought, really, Dad? He had to know how negatively his brothers viewed him. He also knew what they were capable of. But still, he agreed to go by himself without any complaint or any company for protection to check on his hostile brothers in the midst of a hostile territory. And this is the second trauma that Joseph experienced. Joseph's brothers brutalized and betrayed him. Verse 15. When he arrived at Shechem, he couldn't find his brothers. He asked a local resident if he had seen them. They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Now, take a look at this map real quick. So here's where they start out. Jacob sends Joseph from the valley of Hebron, which is down here, up to Shechem. By the way, that's not a quick walk. That's at least about a two-day walk. When he gets there, they're not there. Hey, they're over in Dothan. He goes there instead. I want you to understand, Joseph could have easily turned back and went home when he got to Shechem and said, Dad, I went where you told me to go, and they weren't there. But Joseph was not afraid to go the extra mile, to put forth the extra effort. There's a conscientiousness and a compliant spirit that Joseph seems to have that will become more evident in what lies ahead for him. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan. Now, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming on the horizon, they saw their opportunity to take revenge. And verse 18 says, they saw him in the distance. Let me ask you a question. How did they recognize it was Joseph even when they couldn't see his face? The robe, the coat. Joseph is wearing the robe. So in verse 19, they don't say, here comes Joseph. Here comes our little brother. They say, here comes that dreamer. When you envy someone, when someone has hurt you, and you hate them, you don't like to think of them as a person. You don't even like to think of them as having a name, so you give them a label. Here comes daddy's favorite. Here comes that arrogant would-be ruler, and you have a tendency just to dehumanize them. Let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns. Say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. If there was any doubt how they felt about him, this clears it up. They wanted him dead. They didn't want to have to look at him any, uh, anymore. It's been said that a mob often sinks to the level of its lowest participant. 
People will do things and say things in a large group they would never do and say otherwise. I've heard it said, if you see three or more dogs traveling together, beware because dogs get bold when they're in a pack. You know what? People do too. You watch out if you're in a group of bitter, angry people, whether it's strikers on a picket line, protesters in a march, drunks in a bar, a losing team on the bus, or church members in a crowded parking lot. (laughs) Anarchy can break out at any moment. This group of 10 brothers was dangerous like that. Let's kill him, one of them said. Let's just throw him in this cistern and be done with him. Yeah, another one chimes in. Let's see some ferocious animal killed him. And you can just hear them talking trash about him. Maybe at first not believing that it would really happen. We're told only one brother, Reuben, the oldest, tried to stop it. Verse 21, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. He said, don't shed any blood Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, let me tell you a little more insight into this family. Reuben failed in his attempt to rescue Joseph for two reasons. Number one, he was cowardly. What do I mean by that? Reuben did not have the courage to stand up to his other brothers and say, hey, guys, you're doing that over my dead body. This is crazy talk, and it's wrong. And then be willing to take the abuse from the rest of his brothers. He was the oldest, and in that culture, he was next in line to be the leader of the tribe. He could have exercised some moral authority here that could have shaped the family dynamics in a different way for years to come. But that leads to the second reason he failed. Reuben lacked credibility. You say, what are you talking about? Something happened in Reuben's life prior to this that was so bad, even these morally messed up brothers couldn't respect him. We read about it in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. While Jacob dwelt in the land, get this, Reuben went and lay with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Jacob heard of it, in case you missed that, his oldest son slept with one of the women that his father had children with, and again, look at this phrase, and Jacob heard of it. No mention of discipline. No correction. He just passively lets it go. But the other brothers undoubtedly heard of it too. And they lost respect for Reuben. I mean, he slept with two of his brother's mother for crying out loud. You know, there are some sins even hardened criminals don't tolerate. So Reuben is given lip service as the older brother. But later, they just carry out their treachery when he's not around. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. By the way, the word stripped here means to skin an animal. It indicates a violent ripping of his robe. And most likely all of his clothes were ripped off of him and he was thrown into that cistern naked. The richly ornamented robe he was wearing, just in case you're wondering if Joseph had the coat on, there it is. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The word threw is also a very violent word. It's not just a light toss. They picked him up and dumped him into that cistern like a dead body being dumped in the river or the woods. Only Joseph wasn't dead. 
In fact, it's not until years later when the brothers are recalling this traumatizing event among themselves that we learn this important detail. Jump ahead and look at this, chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not. Listen, Joseph begged for his life to his brothers. Don't do this. Please, somebody help me. Why? And to reveal just how hardened their hearts were towards him after they brutalized him, we read this in verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, you have to be pretty calloused to plot the murder of your little brother and then sit down and eat a meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Let me ask you a question. What's the chances that a caravan heading to Egypt just happens to pass that way precisely at that moment? What a coincidence, right? Or was something else or someone else at work here? I think so. God was going to be involved in all of this. Remember what the psalmist said about Joseph's story in Psalm 105. We read it a couple weeks ago. He, God, sent a man before them. Joseph sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. God sent Joseph before them. But what a way to be sent. Back to the story. Judah Remember that name. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. They pulled him out of the cistern and sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat. They dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this robe. Examine it to see whether it belongs to your son. Now, notice the brothers did not overtly lie about it. They just practiced deception, right? Kids do that a lot with their parents. Parents go away for a couple of days and they tell their teenager, now we don't want you out partying while we're away. So the teenagers throw a wild party in their own home. Parents come back and say, what'd you do last night? Oh, nothing, I just stayed home. <laughs> it's not an outright lie, but it is deceptive. They took this robe back to their father, Jacob, and Judah, the one who came up with the idea to sell him comes to his father, knowing it was his fault that his father's heart is broken, and he puts his arm around him, and he says, does this belong to your son? He, Jacob, recognized and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animals devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go to the grave for my son. His father wept for him. That began for Judah and the rest of his brothers a 22-year cover up. For 22 years, Judah and his brothers lived with this dark secret. For 22 years, they never broke. 
on every one of Joseph's birthdays for the next 22 years, when a parent kind of relives all that trauma again, Judah and his brothers played along. They never confessed. They never repented. They never asked for forgiveness. Some of us here today, we have a secret. There are some chapters in life you hope nobody finds out about. Maybe you went into marriage with some chapters that you hope your wife and children never find out about. Maybe you took your current job hoping there are some things your current employer never finds out. There are some events, there's some relationships, there's some parties, there's some financial dealings, there's some business trips, there's some hidden habits, there's some pictures, there's some social media posts that you hope no one ever finds out about because you got a secret. There's an old saying that goes like this, we're only as sick as our secrets. And people in substance abuse recovery programs like Journey to Christian Recovery, they know that saying very well. I want to tell you something, friends. God has a way of revealing our secrets, and yet, by his sovereign grace, he can do it in a way that brings healing. Now, listen, that doesn't mean it isn't painful. There is no way for a secret sin this spectacular to be resolved without revisiting some incredibly deep hurts. And that's what we're going to see later on in this series. For now, I just want you to hear these words of Jesus. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open. And everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. Finally, we see the third way Joseph was traumatized. Joseph's captors capitalized on him. Joseph, the favored son but hated brother, becomes a commodity, a slave. One more in the sinful, shameful shuffling millions of men and women who have been demeaned by their fellow men and women and consigned to the inhumanity of slavery. The price paid for him proves the historical accuracy of this account. Ancient records show that it matches exactly the going rate for a slave at that time. We got to stop and ask ourselves, what was going on in Joseph's mind during this torturous trip down to Egypt? I'm sure, first of all, he's glad to be alive, but his hands were tied. He was treated like an animal, not knowing what was going to happen to him at the end of the journey. Can I stop and just ask you, have you noticed how quickly life can change? I mean, you begin a day like any other, not suspecting it will end any differently, and all of a sudden, something happens, and life as you knew it is different. You discover a lump on your body. You think it might be cancerous. You get a phone call from the teacher. We think your child may have a learning disability. You go into your boss's office, and he says, we're letting you go. You find a text. Your marriage partner is sent to a lover. You get a phone call. Dad's had a heart attack. It doesn't look good. You're just driving along. Ordinary day, thinking about simple things. Truck pulls out in front of you. Next thing you know, you wake up in intensive care or maybe standing before your creator. It can all happen so quickly, can it? That's why Job said, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Here's Joseph, 17 years of age, young, handsome, healthy, wealthy, pampered, 
sent on what should have been a routine errand by his father, never thinking it would be the last time he would see his dad for over two decades. And now all of a sudden, he's brutalized, he's betrayed, and he's bound, headed to Egypt to be sold as a slave. Verse 36 of chapter 37 reads, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, later on, in fact, next week, don't miss next week. Next week, we're going to read this physical description of Joseph. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the human trafficking market would be for a well-built, handsome 17-year-old male. I would guess quite a bit. To prove that point, we read that a high-ranking Egyptian official named Potiphar was the highest bidder for Joseph. Potiphar is introduced here simply as the captain of the guard. That phrase doesn't do justice to Potiphar's powerful position. We think, oh, he was head of security for Pharaoh. Much bigger role than that. This is the same title that's used for the Babylonian general who destroyed the city of Jerusalem a millennium later, meaning that most likely Potiphar was the commander of the Egyptian army, meaning he's one of the most powerful people in the most powerful empire of the world at that time. As a senior military leader, he would have lived in a prominent dwelling with a large staff of servants and a vast estate to manage, meaning Joseph was sold into a center of great power. Remember that for next week. Now, if you're a slave, you probably don't want to be bought by a man like this. People don't get to be captain of the guard by being warm and fuzzy personalities. As a high-ranking military man, he would know how to teach obedience and respect for authority. A new slave would most likely have the worst of sleeping quarters, be given the most menial task to begin with. Here was pampered and protected Joseph suddenly taking out the garbage, scrubbing toilets, carrying heavy burdens in the heat of the desert. Maybe worse of all, he was cut off from everyone he knew and all alone in a foreign country. And yet, it is precisely at this very point in the story that the writer introduces us to a phrase that will occur several more times in the rest of Joseph's narrative. Verse 2, chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. Everybody say that with me. Uh, Lake County, online, let's say that verse together. The Lord was with Joseph. John Lennox writes, he'd lost his father and his family. It is almost as if God compensates him for his loneliness and isolation by allowing him to sense in a new way that he had not abandoned him. Yet how should we understand the phrase, the Lord was with him in the undesirable circumstance in which Joseph found himself? It is so easy to write these words over our lives when everything is going well, isn't it? But Joseph was Potiphar's slave. He had no rights. His future was decidedly bleak, yet we're emphatically told that the Lord was with him. We see the providence of God behind what befalls Joseph. We must recognize God's providence in our lives as well because there are times when we may find ourselves so weak, so alone, when things are, aren't going smoothly and we can imagine that the Lord has left us, yet Lennox writes, it is not so. I want to leave you with one thought today. One thought, ready? God's wise and redeeming love is compatible with the terrible things that happen in our lives. Now, slow down. Read that again. We'll pass right over that. 
Let me explain. I believe the story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a typology of Jesus in the New Testament. You say, what are you talking about? Typology is a symbolism that acts as a prophecy. In Old Testament typology, there are objects and people that prefigure, foreshadow, whisper of, or point to something that is yet to happen or someone, most often Jesus, who is yet to come. Joseph is clearly seen as a type of Jesus throughout his life. In fact, one Old Testament scholar named A.W. Pink documented at least 60 different ways that the life of Joseph points to the life of Jesus who was to come, but none greater than the one we study today. You say, what are you talking about? Think. Centuries after Joseph's brutal betrayal, betrayal by his brothers, another one from the lineage of Jacob came to his own and his own received him not. Another one from the house of Jacob was sold for silver by someone who was one of his closest companions named Judah. Another one was stripped naked, abandoned to die, and cried out in the dark, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? But here's a key difference between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was involuntarily turned into a savior through his suffering, but Jesus voluntarily came and chose to suffer on our behalf so we would never have to suffer alone. So today, you feel like you're in a deep pit crying out, why? And you feel so alone and so abandoned. You're not. Listen to me. Christianity is the only religion that claims that God has suffered for you and with you and he died alone so you would never be alone. One more time. The Lord was with Joseph and he's with you and he's with me today. And even in a greater way, through the gift of the Holy Spirit that never leaves us and never forsakes us. And that's what we need more than anything else when we suffer. Here's what I know. When we suffer, we think we need answers. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't need an explanation of your suffering as much as you need an incarnation of a loving presence. Years ago, I started out in ministry and I thought I knew a lot. <laughs> And people would ask me questions as a young preacher fresh out of Bible college. Why, preacher? Why? And I tried to give them answers, and I failed miserably. And finally, one day, a wise old preacher said, John, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. He said, when people suffer, they don't need your talking. They need you. They don't need your answers. They need your presence. And think about it. Now, think about this. Even if God gave you answers, do you think you'd be smart enough to understand them? Try to explain to your three-year-old child all it will take to get her into college. Save your breath. She won't get it. God doesn't tell us why everything happens the way it does, partly because we wouldn't understand it even if he did, but mainly because we don't need an explanation as much as we need an incarnation, and that's exactly what he gave us in Jesus. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and eventually within us, and that changes everything for us and about us. Somebody ought to say amen. Amen. Bow your heads. Mm. Lord, just want to let that 
your word just settle on us, just hit our hearts. I'm thinking specifically of that word, the Lord was with Joseph. Wow, we read about that in the most bleak and dire of situations. The Lord was with Joseph. And there are men and women in Apopka, Lake County, online right now, and they so need that word right now because they feel so hurt. They feel abandoned. They're crying out, why? Why? And the Lord is with them. Thank you, Jesus, that you suffered alone so we would never be alone. Thank you. We receive that in Jesus' name. We all agreed and said. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.